cool thing. Uh, I've, Dave and I have walked like brothers together for 27 years now. And, um, and just it, it, I told him this morning, I said, you have embodied the truth that your most important ability is your availability. It's, he said, I know, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with what happens to you. And as a result, um, 27 states of people have been affected by this. And a real cool thing is in the building of the infrastructure of Cancer Hope, he and his team, which uh, very strongly included Andy and Michelle Lehman, have built a system that's duplicable. So we are in the beginning stages with Lori Horseman as the point on this of uh, next, late this year to early next year, we're going to launch an Alzheimer's Hope ministry and dementia because it is such a huge deal, especially for those who are caring for those with Alzheimer's and dementia. And uh, I know I'm doing a lot of research. We're learning so much. And um, we're, you know, this, this year we're going to show you our plans to turn Players Box into a six-day-a-week ministry to meet kids where they are in mental health issues and we're going to do the same thing for you adults. We're going, to, we're going to hopefully bring Christ into the mental health issue. I have the idea that we're going to call it Grayer's Box uh, for those of you who are getting older. And uh, it's, uh, we're going to see what we can do to, to just meet this cultural dilemma where, where it is. Love. Uh, the, the, the most deep pounding of your heart and mind is love, isn't it? I mean, it's the highest human experience is to love and be loved. And have you ever noticed, have, have any of you here ever done something crazy because you loved, right? Have you ever done something that was nutty because you loved someone? Uh, if you haven't, then you probably haven't really loved. Well, um, uh, longtime Southbrookers, oh, by the way, I gotta say a shout out to our graduates. Let's give it up for our graduates on this weekend, uh, for sure. That's right. Uh, we have uh, just so many kids, and I, you know, uh, the, the player's box, we get, I get closer to kids that are in player's box because I'm, I'm interacting with them. And um, like Anna Pangalangan is going to Ohio State to be a nurse. And I just, I've literally, Sherry used to babysit her when she was like this big. And uh, Ian Pennington, I've known Ian, he and his dad and I have been great friends. He's going, Ian is going to Akron to play baseball. And, uh, but the Hobbs family, I love the Hobbs family, Randy and Ronnie and, and uh, their, their kids. And... Um, through a long process, uh, Jordan, their daughter, who's a graduate of Springboro this year, a little way, I helped her, and you're, you know, I'm more proud of me than I am her in saying this, I helped her decide to go to the University of Michigan to play basketball. <laughs> now, that's pain on my face, mask <laughs> under a smile. So this picture was posted, and, uh, and, and then it's been abused. Uh, as it's gone viral. I have family members that are disowning me. I mean, because this is a big deal that what I did there, I had a friend say, I just threw up in my mouth seeing that picture. Uh, and because uh, love does crazy things, doesn't it? And, you know, the cool thing about Jordan going to Michigan is we're going to be able to see her play. I made a deal with her that I can wear my OSU hat when we see her play at the Schottenstein Center in Columbus. I, I, I'm allowed to do that. 
And, uh, but this, this was love does crazy, crazy things. Justin Martin, I hadn't, he's a huge Michigan fan, and I hadn't heard from him for a couple days, but when we had our Zoom call for Players Box coaches the other night, this was what he showed on the screen right here. <laughs> he's a sick man. But, yeah, I, uh, Todd Porter, who's a huge Michigan fan, said, I would never do that if it were the reverse and it was an OSU. I said, Todd, because you don't love like I do. Jesus lives in me, and I love fully now. And I mean it. I, there was a time in my life when if Michigan were after her, I would have stayed quiet. I wouldn't have said anything. But sometimes we do things out of love that, that you know, that go, okay. I'm, I am going beyond myself here. Now, here's the dilemma that culture never thinks about. Here's the dilemma with this. What, what then about love? Where does love fit in a world where God is not real? We don't think about this. So we have this whole Darwinian, atheistic process that many in our educational systems espouse, and yet... The mantra of our culture more than ever is love. All we need is love, 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 love. If we can live on love and we don't need anything else and and love. And yet, wait a minute, do you realize that if there is no God, there is no love? If, If all you are is the process of a random collision of atoms and molecules, then That means there's no choice. You are just a product of your chemistry and your DNA, and it happened to randomly collide. Matter of fact, let's pretend for just a minute that there is no God. We're here today, and there is no God. But you have these strong chemical things going on for somebody you came with today. So I want you to turn to them right now and say, my molecules are randomly colliding with your molecules right now. Okay, just turn to them right now. Now, don't do it to somebody you don't know. Don't do it to somebody you didn't come with, okay? But if there's no God, you can't say, I love you. You can't because of this randomness idea. When I think of this, I always think of George McFly. Remember what George McFly said in Lou's Cafe to Lorraine? You're my, you're my density. I mean, I mean my destiny. And if there's no God, then George McFly was right. That there's no choice in whom you choose or, or who chooses you. It is all just a matter of density. It's just all a matter of a collision randomly of molecules. And this is why Aubrey Hux, Aldous Huxley said, of all the worn, smudged, dog-eared words in our vocabulary, he was an atheist, love is surely the grubbiest, smelliest, slimiest. Bald from a million pulpits, lasciviously crooned through hundreds of loudspeakers, it has become an outrage to good taste and even decent feeling, an obscenity which one hesitates to pronounce. This is what an English atheist sounds like, right? Right here. And because he's right. He's right. It is this manipulation that we created because we think we need some sense of control that we choose one another, but it doesn't exist. It is a smelly word. I doubt if that quote inspired any love songs, right? I doubt if it did. Why? Because we have this intellect in Darwinian evolutionary theory that says there is no love, and yet we have this experience in life that says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. 
There's something here deeper than the collision of molecules, I think. There's something that is so powerful. C.S. Lewis said, if there is no God, then the universe is a universe of nonsense. But since you are here, grab what you can. Remember that old commercial? Grab all the gusto you can. Unfortunately, you can't, except in the lowest animal sense, be in love with a girl if you know that all the beauties, both of her person and of her character, are a momentary and accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms and that your own response to them is only a sort of psychic phosphorescence arriving, arising from the behavior of your genes. And he's spot on. Ann Wilson is a brilliant writer and author And a lot of people when he was younger thought he would be the next C.S. Lewis. If you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, C.S. Lewis was one of the most famous atheists in the world, an Oxford scholar and professor who became a Christ follower and became next probably only to Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, the most impactful Christian of the 20th century in the world. His writings have influenced more people for Christ than probably anybody in history but the Apostle Paul. And Ann Wilson was in line to be the next C.S. Lewis. That's how brilliant he was. And then he suddenly renounced his Christian faith. And for many, many years, he was a mocker of Christianity. Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins, the atheists, who are probably the two most atheists in the world right now, were, were, they, they loved embracing the idea that Ann Wilson had renounced his faith. But then, not long ago, he came back to his Christian faith. And became almost like the Apostle Paul, going from a persecutor of the faith to a preacher of the faith. And a real fascinating thing is he wrote this. He said, atheists are missing out on some very basic experiences of life. This, when an interviewer asked him, why did you come back to Christ? The Christian perception of life was deeper, wiser, and more rounded than my own. Deeper, wiser, and more rounded than my own. You will not hear that in the halls of our universities. That the the perspective of the Christus is deeper, wiser, and more rounded than my own. Nancy Piercy was speaking. She's the author who was speaking at the Veritas Faith Conference at at Ohio State. I doubt if Michigan has Ohio State has Veritas conferences that Ohio State has, but that's uh, neither here nor there. And she said at that conference, love is not an illusion created by the genes to promote our evolutionary survival, but an aspect of human nature that reflects the fundamental fabric of ultimate reality. When we get in a moment to the writings of John, the friend of Jesus, when he says, God is He is saying God is love. That is the fundamental fabric of ultimate reality. So the ultimate reality is this concept of the divine love. There was a writer by the name of Susan McCauley, probably 25 years ago now. She wrote a book that I, I picked it up and read it because of its title. The title of the book was How to Be Your Own Selfish Pig. And some of us don't need help on how to do that, but some of us do. We want to be a pig. But it was a, a book on philosophy. And she shared the story of a couple, Philippe and Francoise, two bright and sophisticated students at Sorbonne University in Paris. One day, the two meet. Romance blossoms, she writes, and they begin living together during the school year. When their studies end, the lovers are perplexed over what to do next. Next. 
It is more convenient for them to separate. So they part and they go their separate ways. Philippe tries to push aside his feelings for Francoise by employing the concepts he learned in his philosophy classes in school. Love is an illusion. These feelings I have for her are temporary and and are the result of my chemical hormones. Other women will come along to replace Francoise. As the months go by, they cannot forget each other, however. The fleeting sexual experiences they have with others leave them empty and hollow. They pursue lives that they believe will provide them with excitement and satisfaction, but find that the theory they believe in is not working for them. They finally come back together, she writes. Macaulay says she first met Philippe at Labrie School in Switzerland. If you don't know this, Labrie, it means uh, refuge. It's a Christian school founded by Dr. Francis Schaeffer, Schaeffer, one of the most famous Christian philosophers of our era, in Switzerland, and his confusion of the collision of his belief about love as an illusion and his experience led him. And she said, Philippe told him he could not understand why it was so difficult to live without genuine love and commitment. He acknowledged that he never realized how his atheistic ideas about life were draining the joy from life. He wrote, or he said, and she wrote, I have always believed that the human being was the result of chance. We are like machines doing what we are programmed to do by our genes and instincts and hormones. This means that I cannot make choices. My genetic program is running me. I cannot really love. A computer can't love. Love relationships are a farce, an illusion. And that tension is what brought him to Labrie. She said, for Philippe, life did not have any meaning or joy and consequently led to only confusion. Because what Philippe believed to be true intellectually contradicted what he felt to be true experientially. Look at these words. Look at these words. The the New Testament says that there is a God. And that as a result, there is this concept of love that is a choice and a decision. The Greeks had four words for love. Three of them, one was phileo, which is brotherly love. One was eros, which is the sexual love. And one was agape, which was the divine love. It was the love of choice, the highest form of love. It was the love of commitment. It was the love that, that you know, a person's instincts are saying, don't go on that beach facing German firepower and you still do it. That's, that is ultimate love. It says you go to a cross when your body's saying don't do that and you go to a cross out of love. And so the, the interesting thing about this concept of love that Alexis sang about that is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 13 is love is a choice. It does involve chemistry. It does involve chemistry. We can't deny that it involves pheromones and hormones, all these kinds of chemicals in our body. It does. Love is a decision that does involve DNA. Real interesting thing here. It's one of the evidences of sin. It's called the pathological pole. Have you ever noticed that you could be in a crowded room and uh, there's an old adage in, in recovery that an alcoholic can spot an alcoholic all the way across the room in a crowded room, a crowded party? It's called the pathological pole. We, are, we tend to gravitate toward people who fulfill a need in us, etc. There is chemistry. 
But what atheism denies is that there's a choice. But there's a decision that I make to be patient, kind, not envy, not boastful, not proud, not rude, not self-seeking, not easily offended. Because John said this, dear friends, let us agape one another. That's the word he used. He didn't say phileo, he didn't say eros, which are more based on affinity and chemistry. He said, let us agape one another. Let's love out of commitment. That's love even when it doesn't pay off. Because agape comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. One of the reasons that John wrote his first letter was to give the followers in his day, here's how you know you're in the faith. Here's how you know Christ is in you and you are in Christ. And he boils it down to, do you love well? Do you love well? Do you agape better than you used to? Then you know that Christ has rebirthed you. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is agape. He is the fabric that defines ultimate reality. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is agape, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's a real interesting thing here. The love of Jesus, I believe, is the hope of the world because it's that kind of love that will save the Middle East and a marriage that's in trouble. It it saves. It just transforms the world, this kind of love. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete among us. How many people here today, right now, you can say, when I didn't know God, I saw God because of someone who loved. It may have been your mother, it may have been your aunt, it may have been a friend, a neighbor. I've never seen an atheist convinced to believe in Jesus because some intellectual argument was so compelling that they said, oh, I was wrong. Now I'll believe in Jesus because you're so smart. But I've seen literally atheists who got cancer and got loved say, I want to know about this love that you have in Christ. Because God was shown among us through that kind of love. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So right there you have this clear, compelling call that the life of the Christus, by the definition of this series, this is the person who says, my worldview is formed by a surrender to Jesus Christ, is defined by love, the ability to agape well. Now, our culture agrees with that, doesn't it? Right? I mean, our culture, if you, if you said, love one another, that's going to get a lot of pushback in America. No, it's not. It's not going to get pushback in America. We believe, like the year we just came out of, a year ago this weekend when something horrible happened in our country, and as a result, the call to love was just resounding throughout our streets and our citadels and our cathedrals and everything else. There is almost zero pushback in this culture when you say the Bible tells us to love one another. The question is, what does that mean? When we talk about love, what are we talking about? And here's why I want you to think for just a minute. Because I may be wrong, but I doubt it. Okay? In American culture, love means liberty, liking, and lining up. If you love me, you will let me do what I want. If you love me, you will like what I like. And if you love me, you will agree with me. 
How many of you have been parents for five seconds? <laughs> is that what love is? Does love mean always giving your child everything they want? Liking what they like, always agreeing with them? Now, if you're really codependent as a parent, you're going, yeah, I think that's what love is. Yeah, I think it is. <laughs> no, it's not. I just want you to know that's not love. To be popular is not what it means to love. But in America, that's what we define. You don't love me if you don't agree with me. And this creates problems in a culture that's all about freedom and liberty. And so we digress into statements like be tolerant of one another. Do you know the Bible never says live tolerant lives? It says live lives of love. That's what it calls us to. It doesn't say be tolerant of people who differ from you. And so here's the thing. For those of you who, like me, are saying, I want to be a Christus. I want my worldview to be defined by the Christ who then created this movement that, that changed the world. It, it changed the world. And that we believe there's still hope that it can change the world today, which I believe to the fiber of my being that it can still change the world today if we do what they did and we love like they loved. Well, there's a writer, he actually passed away last year, who is a church historian and a theologian, brilliant individual by the name of Larry Hurtado. And Larry Hurtado wrote a book called Destroyer of the Gods, how Christianity took down the Roman gods, how Christianity took the the, the cult of the emperors, which is what Rome was. It was a cult of emperor worship. They believed in the son of God. They believed in the savior of the world. They just believed that Caesar was the son of God who was the savior of the world. So you can imagine when the Christians came along and said, no, he's not, no, he's not. There is one God and one Lord, and his name is Jesus. You, you can imagine this may have had a reason into the play that the first three centuries of this millennium they were the most persecuted group of people in, in the world, especially in Rome. And Larry Hurtado, he's also written a book about, about, that asked the question, why would anyone want to become a Christian the first 300 years of Christianity? Why would anyone want to do this when you were just getting bludgeoned? And he answers it. He answers this question by asking the question, how did the earliest Christus understand what it meant to love one another and love people outside their circle. If we really want to know what does it mean, love one another, as John intended it, let's go back to the people who first heard that, who heard from the people who actually walked with Jesus and how they understood it. Because here's what it is. Today in America with the church, you have two philosophies. You have the philosophy that the church should adapt its message to fit with culture. Keep its methods the same. It should be church, but change its message to adapt to culture. Our church believes the methods should change because culture's communication changes, but the message doesn't change. It stays the same. And so this becomes pertinent to us because we take from the early Christus, as we're calling them, the people who said our worldview is formed by this person, and that's how we then shall live. He boils it down to five characteristics, and I want you to look at these with me. Five characteristics of early 
Christus. Number one, the early church was the first multiracial movement in history and experienced a unity across ethnic boundaries that was startling. We take that for granted in America, don't we? Racism is evil. Well, the early Christists were the one who really brought that into the forefront. In Christ, there is no Jew nor Greek, male nor female, slave nor free, but you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was radical in a Roman social structure that had a very definitive superiority and inferiority predictable structure to it. The Christians came along literally in that day. Someone who's a Roman slave could be the elder or the pastor of a church where there was an aristocrat attending. And this, this, this messed with Roman Pax Romana. I mean, this just, okay, we'll tolerate this, but this is not right. This is not right. Number two, the early church was famous for its hospitality to the poor, the hungry, the marginalized, and the suffering. Again, we take that for granted. Isn't that the American way? We're one of the most generous countries in the history of the world. But do you realize it is the movement of Christ that started this? In Pax Romana, if you were poor, if you were hungry, it's very similar, very similar to Hinduism. You have your own karma to work out. You don't help someone who's on that lower tier of need and marginalization. You don't help them. And the Christians came along and said, no, our Lord said, whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers and sisters, what did he say? What did he say? How did he finish that? You do it to me. And they took that seriously. Hit the pause button for a minute, Southbrook. There were a few times last year that somebody called me evil because we were open. You're greedy. You're evil. You just, you're just trying to to make money by putting people in jeopardy by when we opened in June. And I have to tell you, that I may be, I don't know. I'm pretty unaware of myself most of the time, so I could be. But, but I, I gotta tell you, this is the reason why we opened last June. Is my ethos behind why I thought we should open is, is because we are of a spiritual descent that when urban plagues hit in the early centuries in Rome, when, when everyone was running out of Rome to protect themselves, including doctors, physicians, caregivers, the Christians ran into Rome to care for the sick. They ran into Rome. And it was just that knowledge that said, wait a minute, I know it's risky. I know. But we're an essential business for people who are depressed and, and lost and alone. And we, we have to open our doors of healing and this is how they changed the world, is, is they cared for people that Rome said are valueless. They're valueless. They don't, add, they don't add anything to Roman Pax Romana, the Roman peace and prosperity. They don't add anything to the emperor or the cult, uh, the cult of the emperor. They don't add anything to that. Here's the third one, big one. The early church was a community of forgiveness and reconciliation. They did not retaliate when wronged. They took the words of their master seriously. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And this was a huge one. In Rome, it was weakness to be compassionate and forgiving. Grace was a weak thing. In Rome, if someone wronged you, you powered up. And the Christians came along, and when Stephen was martyred, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They modeled that, and they continually surrendered their lives to Christ, even when it didn't pay off, and they, they forgave it was a stunning deal in a culture that was very vindictive. Do you know a culture like that? Do you know a culture that's very vindictive? <laughs> yeah, the one we live in. Neither left nor right get this one. I just want to tell you right now. Neither left nor right get this one. 
But the early Christians, I think this is how they really changed the world. By the way, if you really want to show people you're a follower of Jesus, don't give them the finger when they cut you off in traffic. That's just a great way to start it. Okay, just start right there. Just stop giving people the eye. Just stop, you know, the, the, the things that happen to us to slight us, be gracious. Be forgiving. And, and you will, people will go, what, what, what angle you got? What makes you tick? Number four, it was a community radically committed to the sanctity of life. This was huge. In Rome, abortion wasn't common, but as you can imagine, it was very dangerous, very dangerous. And the Christians loved women who, were, who had gotten pregnant mainly because of the unbridled sexual mores of the Roman culture that I'll get to in a minute. But what was more common was called the discarding of the infants. And usually when girls were born, because girls couldn't contribute in that culture's economic power as nearly as much, they were, they were disposed into the streets, into the garbage. They were sold into slavery at the time of birth. And it was the Christian movement that said, no, life is sacred from womb to tomb. And so from the pre-born and just born to the elderly about to enter into death's gates, they cared for those that Rome saw as not valuable. This was a huge deal. You can make a very, very strong appeal to Christ movement just on the basis of hospitals that started because of the Christ movement. And still to this day. Number five, it was a sexual counterculture that promoted a covenant of one man and one woman mutually equal in marriage. This was unheard of. In Rome, a man's power was measured. It was a scorecard by how many women he had. It was a very polygamous, polyamorous culture. You literally, a man who had five women was not as powerful as a man who had 10 women. And the Christian movement comes along and says, no, God meant for this covenant of one man and one woman to show the world what God's love looks like. As a matter of fact, when I do a wedding, I'll tell couples, and evidently by Alexis's song, nobody's paying attention at these weddings. Have you noticed that? <laughs> but I'll say, I'll say, remember, the highest purpose, according to Ephesians 5, the most influential document on marriage ever written, the highest purpose for marriage is not companionship. It's not fulfillment. The highest purpose for marriage is you're a miniature church. You're a miniature church. Your high calling now is to show what God's love looks like through two people living in covenant with one another. And this was radical in a culture that said, no, you don't limit yourself to one person in fidelity. You show your power, very similar to our cultural mores when it comes to sex, very similar was Rome's. Ironically, it ended up resulting in the marginalization of women, which is really ironic, the same thing that happens today. And they changed the world with this. They changed the world with this. The idea of fidelity was unheard of. Now, one of the things that we're asking with our questions that we're posting this week is this question. Paul said, or John said, we know and rely on the love God has for us. That statement gets glossed over when people read 1 John 4, but we read that. We know and we rely. In other words, we get our cue for how to love not from culture, but from Christ. This is our constant cue. When things are tough, we, we, we do our part. We, we care for our side of the street and what we can do to love. Not 
I'm a slave to my emotions. I'm a slave to my hormones. We have a choice. We're not animals. We are divine image bearers of God. And here's the question I ask for you on this Memorial Day weekend. This weekend where we really, in essence, celebrate agape. This is really what Memorial Day weekend celebrates. It's a celebration of the greater love has no one than this, than agape love. Are you leaning in and relying on the love of God for how you live? Is this the type of love that you, you are growing in? Because if, if we boil the whole call of Christ to a person down to one statement, it is, it is this statement. I'm learning to love the way Christ did. I'm learning to love the way Christ did. Love isn't just letting people live like they want. Love isn't liking what they like and agreeing with it. It is even when I don't like, even when I don't agree, even when I don't have a consistency with what they believe, I can still love. If I'm scarlet and gray and they're maize and blue, I can still love them, right? Are you doing that? Because friends, all the complexity when we flip through the New Testament and it can seem so complicated. It really, 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 really is this. God is love. God is agape. And he calls us to agape him with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength and to agape one another. Are you doing it? The words that precede the basis for Alexis And her song are these words, if I speak in the languages, the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And in verse 13, he says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. That's it. Agape is it. That is it. Boom, deal, drop the mic, we're done. (laughs) If I'm not growing in that, I seriously have to question, is this just a religion to me, or have I connected to the Christ who is love? This, This is the deal. Heaven, faith, hope, and love, these three remain. There's not gonna be any faith in heaven, right? There's not going to be any faith. There's not going to be hope in heaven. They'll be resolved. They'll be done. That's it. There's no more faith, no more hope. Guess what there's going to be loads of in heaven? If you haven't been about love on earth, Dallas Willard said, heaven will be for those who can stand it. Because it's going to be about a lot of love everywhere. A lot of love, 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 love everywhere. Are you relying on Using solitude and scripture and service and support and significant events to grow, to love like him. You see, we rely on the love of Christ and then we love like the love of Christ. And this is the call of your life. I just tell you right now, it's the call of your life. I may be wrong, but I doubt it. All right, let's pray. Father, may we love with a radical heaven-sent love, on this weekend where we celebrate the virtue of agape, we live in a culture that is worshiping at the altar of eros. We are sexualizing everything because we have lost 
our point of anchoring with what a human being really is. We are remade, though, in Christ in the image of the one who is the fabric of ultimate reality, the one who is agape. And our hope is that you'll keep finishing the work that you've started in us until the day of Christ. Thank you for those who gave their lives and their limbs that we might sit here today in freedom. We thank you so much. And when we pause tomorrow to say thank you, Lord, for agape love, both through Christ and in our country. In Jesus' name we prayed and praised, and everyone said, amen. We'll see you next week as we talk about sex. Yay. <laughs>